Chapter Two: Contracting a Fair Trade. Mac, the company executive who was in charge of training new traders, even had to pay for Jason's new pair of work boots because the kid didn't previously own any, and he'd discovered the magic of acquiring things through expense reports. The company credit card was also paying for a two weeks stay at the Supa Motel in Upton, Kansas. It looked to Jason like something out of a 1950s horror film, especially with the wheat harvesters' beat-up old pickup trucks parked in front of five of the motel's six room doors. His own shiny red Mazda Miata pulled up in front of the last one. It was July in North Central Kansas, and even if the weather wasn't that much different than Jason's native Chicago, humid, hot, windy. The environment certainly was. Once he got over the indignity of having to stay at the Supaw, and then got over the fact that there was no Chipotle or Jimmy John's at which to buy his lunch, he was going to have to buy supplies at the little grocery store on Main Street, and cook for himself in his motel room. All he had left to do was to come to terms with his job for the next two weeks. The company had sent him to Upton ostensibly to help out with wheat harvest, but mostly so he could learn about running an elevator. Fortunately, his new place of work was easy to find. The only building in town over twenty-five feet tall was the Upton Elevator. As soon as he drove across the railroad tracks and turned down the elevator's gravel driveway, Jason noticed the place seemed to hum with a mysterious energy and purpose. What could there possibly be to do here that they're so excited about? A dozen semi trucks, joined by five smaller farm trucks, were parked nose to tail down the right side of the driveway. Dust was billowing out of the dumping station at the elevator's mouth, and basically out of its every pore. It took a few seconds for Jason to steal his nerves and decide to actually get out of his car, but he liked the sexy idea of being a commodity trader, and he liked the paycheck from the company that employed him, so he did. Lenny, the elevator manager. Immediately put Jason and his pretty new steel-toed boots to work unloading trucks. This meant thirteen-hour days bent over at the waist, cranking various trucks' rusty trap doors open, then breathing in the dust and chaff which sailed up from their contents. Jason also got a taste of working in the scale house, frantically weighing each incoming truck and issuing its detailed paperwork as fast as he could. He got to answer the phone calls from farmers wondering about dumping hours, contesting grain discounts, and asking about prices. He even got to spend one ninety-seven degree day at the top of the unair conditioned elevator's headhouse, pulling the levers to direct incoming grain into one bin or another. All his efforts managed to earn him the nickname Chicago from the rest of the elevator employees. He assumed it was because they were impressed by how much he knew about the world. They were actually identifying a certain urbane delicacy, which showed through each physical task. On the morning of the fifth day of his stint in Upton, Jason called the elevator and asked to speak to Lenny.
Hey, Lenny, I think I'm going to take a personal day today. God, he was sore. Every muscle in his body ached. It was going to be lovely to just stay in his shabby little hotel room and watch TV with the window unit air conditioner cranked all the way up. Excuse me, what? Lenny was the most notoriously violent-tempered and vulgar-mouthed elevator manager in the company. After a good five minutes of ass-chewing, and then a desperate call from Jason to Mac, who actually took Lenny's side and <clears throat> encouraged Jason to go back to work, the kid finally did. He pulled on his now-scruffy work boots and ambled into the elevator at 8.30 in the morning. Fifty trucks of warm, sweet-smelling, newly-harvested wheat had already been unloaded. The tipping point came on Tuesday of Jason's second week in Upton. He had just arrived at the scale house, and every single one of the first four farmers who came in to get their paperwork was fretting like an old wet hen. There are still so many fields to harvest. Protein is terrible this year. And there's a hailstorm coming. Almost certainly the thunderclouds forecast to build up that afternoon would turn green and drop epic torrents of hail, what the farmers called the White Combine. It was comical to Jason how worked up and paranoid and whiny and silly those farmers were being. So he asked Sarah, the girl weighing the trucks and printing out the paperwork at the scale house, what would happen if it did hail that afternoon. Oh, I wish these guys wouldn't even mention hail. It would be really bad news. Terrible. The whole crop would be gone. Gone? Wiped out. Destroyed. When hail comes, it just shreds the plants in the field and you can't harvest anything. Jason felt a glimmer of hope in his tired, angry heart. Ha! Awesome! I hope it does hail today. God, not another truck to unload, not another whiny farmer to have to listen to. Oh man, I hope it hails today. I hope it hails right now. And that was the moment the people of the Upton Elevator stopped thinking of Chicago as their harmless little bumbling city boy and started to really dislike him. He had picked the wrong audience for his treatise on the benefits of a harvest-ending hailstorm. Sarah who had learned a thing or two from Lenny in the ways of foul-mouthed ass-chewing, reduced Jason to a sorry, tattered mess. She took on the persona of an Amazon warrior princess defending her people and everything they worked for all year and everything they stood for. How dare he even think of wishing their success would blow away like the trailing clouds of a storm? Deep down, Jason's attitude about the kind of people who would choose to live and farm and work in Upton, Kansas, never really changed. But he was able to make it through his last four days at the elevator by keeping his head down and his mouth shut. Then Mac gave him his next assignment, at company headquarters, learning all the rest there was to learn about grain trading. Virtually all the grain traded all over the world since the beginning of time, and therefore most of the food consumed in the world since the beginning of time, has passed through the hands of people like the people in the previous story. 
farmers worried about storms and willing to sit in line on hot, windy days to bring their product to market. Grain company employees moving that grain along a supply chain. All unite to convey life-giving grain to those who need it, even for the very endmost consumer, the person eating frosted mini wheats for breakfast. Understanding the origins of the trading process could help that person understand the grain market as a whole. Imagine if every end user of grain had to buy the grain directly from a farmer. We'd see huge caravans of grain trucks driven by farmers as they moved their corn from a field in Iowa to an export shipping port in New Orleans. It would be a wildly inefficient use of everyone's time. The farmer needs to be farming, not spending days on the highway, and the exporter needs to have a more predictable source of incoming grain than just hoping some farm trucks show up when there's an empty ocean vessel handy. The need for an efficient system of handling grain first came up in 15th century Japan, when feudal lords received their income from peasants as rice. For the same reasons we experience today, it was more efficient for the peasant farmers to deliver their rice to a local warehouse and get back to the field quickly, than to make an arduous journey to the city where the feudal lord lived. So merchants and brokers evolved to handle the rice in local warehouses, then trade and transport it to the urban centers where it was needed, and all the while managing the feudal lord's holdings by issuing coins and receipts. At the elevator, today the grain industry still needs merchants and brokers. There are some instances when a farmer will bring his grain directly to a local end user. Like an ethanol plant or a cattle feed yard, but more commonly he will deliver it to a local grain elevator. Elevator is the term for those rural skyscrapers you see looming over America's small towns. Basically, big buildings which aggregate and store grain. They're called elevators because they contain mechanical systems to elevate grain up to the headhouse at the top of the elevator. Usually with a series of little buckets on a vertically moving chain. Once the grain has been elevated, it can be directed into the proper storage bin. Actually, the term elevator can be archaic these days, when so much grain is stored in big individual bins or silos, bunkers, and piles. But for our purposes, any major grain storage structure. Or any organization that owns such a structure and buys grain commercially from farmers will be called an elevator. The employees who work at an elevator buying and selling its grain are called merchandisers. The term merchandiser can apply to a much broader population of grain traders, but for now we'll just deal with the guy sitting behind a desk at the local elevator. If a farmer brings in a truckload of grain without previously arranging a price, the elevator or ethanol plant or mill or whatever can spot out the load. That means they will just pay for the grain at that day's posted price. It's the most basic grain trade, but it should be noted that even in that instance, the farmer isn't going to walk out the door immediately with cash in his pocket. 
even for spot loads. The merchandisers must write up a contract with the farmer to officially document the trade, and the elevator's bookkeepers must go through a full settlement process to account for the grain coming in and how it affects the elevator's overall inventory, and for the payment going out based on the contract. A cash grain contract itself is a lot more complex than just saying, Springfield Farmers Co-op will pay Joe Smith $3,000 for one truckload of grain. But that does cover some of the most important items. A more complete list of contract entries would include the contract number, the buyer and the buyer's contact info, let's say Springfield Farmers Co-op, the seller and the seller's contact info, let's say Joe Smith, the date of the contract, in this case, August 16th, the quantity being traded, let's say 5,000 bushels, the commodity being traded, hard red winter wheat, the category, 12% protein, category discounts and premiums, let's say 15 cents premium for each percentage point higher than 12% protein, and 25 cent discount for each percentage point lower than 12% protein. The pricing mechanism, spot price. The price, let's say $6 per bushel. The price basing point, delivered to Springfield Co-op. The delivery period, August 16th. Weights and grades governing the contract, let's say destination weights and grades. Trade rules governing the contract, NGFA trade rules and arbitration. The contract terms. Grain must be free of infestation. The payment terms. Springfield Co-op will issue a check at seller's request upon completion of delivery, provided that seller has signed this contract. Any contract remarks, for instance, hold payment until after January 1st. The signatures and dates. Joe Smith, August 16. The statement of grain terms. Seller warrants that on the delivery dates and on the ending shipment date, the grain shall be free from any security interest or lien, and that seller shall pass to buyer good and marketable title to the grain, etc. Some parts of the cash grain contract are standard on every one of the merchandising company's contracts, and some parts are specific to each trade, usually first handwritten by the merchandiser, then printed up officially and sent to the seller. Even the handwritten copy represents a completed trade, however. Once a contract number has been exchanged, the trade is final. That is to say, the price and terms won't change. Measuring Conventions that doesn't mean Joe Smith is going to receive a check for exactly $30,000 from this trade, however. First of all, the chance of Joe bringing in exactly 5,000.000 bushels is impossibly small. A bushel is a measure of volume, equivalent to 9.3 gallons. In practice, however, grain is actually purchased, managed, and used according to its weight, in pounds or tons. If Joe brings in five truckloads of hard red winter wheat to fill this contract, he's not going to be able to magically fill each truck with exactly 1,000 bushels unless he has an extremely sensitive and sophisticated scale out on his farm and, 
a lot of time on his hands. So let's say the five trucks each carry 57,460 pounds of wheat, then 56,980 pounds, then 57,120 pounds, then 56,860 pounds, and then 57,040 pounds, respectively, for a total of 285,460 pounds of wheat. Springfield Farmers Co-op will pay for the wheat at the contracted per bushel price by assuming a standard 60 pounds of wheat per bushel. That's known as the test weight, which is effectively a standard measure of density for each type of grain. The standard test weight for corn is 56 pounds per bushel, but for wheat and soybeans, it's 60 pounds per bushel. So the five trucks in our example carried the mathematical equivalent of 4,758 bushels. That's the 285,460 pounds divided by 60 pounds per bushel. And the co-op would pay Joe Smith $28,548 for the contract. That's the 4,758 bushels times $6 per bushel. As long as there are no other premiums, or discounts. If you had a way to actually measure the volume of wheat carried on those trucks, it may not have been exactly 4,758 bushels, that is, 44,249 gallons. The wheat itself probably had a test weight that was something more or less than 60.0 pounds per bushel. Lighter grain gets discounted because it's less efficient for end users to handle. But in this example, let's assume Joe Smith had some good quality wheat that was close enough to the correct test weight not to be discounted. In that case, to settle the contract, a bookkeeper at the elevator would have to collect the five scale tickets generated by the incoming loads and match them to the contract. A scale ticket contains all the data about a sample of grain. For instance, it could include... Springfield Farmers Co-op, Springfield, Iowa, inbound ticket number, non-negotiable. The customer name, Joe Smith. A timestamp, August 16th, 10:12 a.m. The vehicle ID, red truck, number 3579. The gross weight, 81,580 pounds. The tear weight, 24,120 pounds. Driver on. The net weight, 57,460 pounds. Estimated cash bushels, 957.67. The cash price, $6. The test weight, 60.1 pounds. Moisture, 14.5%. Shrunk or broken kernels, 0.8. Foreign material, 0.5. Dockage, 1.2. Protein, 11%. The inspector, Sarah. Any remarks? Have a nice day. And a footnote. Steinway Grain Analyzer SL95 version 8.0. Inspection not valid for purposes of the United States Grain Standards Act. So for this load, Joe's payout wouldn't have been discounted for poor test weight, 
but it would have received a discount for the protein of his wheat. Each time a truck showed up at the elevator, an employee would have taken two random samples of the wheat in the truck and tested them for various quality factors. The test weight, the moisture of the grain, the proportion of the samples with damaged kernels, perhaps from insects, the proportion of the samples made up of foreign non-grain material, like dust or bits of insects, the proportion of the samples made up of non-wheat dockage material, like weed seeds and chaff, and, critically for wheat, what percentage of the grain itself was protein. In this example, the co-op based their price for Joe Smith's wheat on the assumption it would be 12% protein. If his five trucks came in and tested 11% protein, the co-op would discount 25 cents per bushel according to the contract and cut him a total check for $27,358.50. That's 4,759 bushels times only $5.75 per bushel. That's because there was nothing else really wrong with his grain. Significant insect damage or foreign materials could also trigger discounts. Remember on the example contract, the merchandiser bought this grain according to destination weights and grades. That means Joe Smith agreed to agree with how the co-op, the destination, weighed his trucks and how they measured the quality of his grain. If he had some reason to think the co-op had a bad scale or would grade his incoming grain unfairly, he could have requested official grading from GIPSA to govern the contract. GIPSA is the Grain Inspection, Packers, and Stockyards Administration, a division of the United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA. Such a request would have meant he'd have to either take his trucks to a GIPSA office, and there aren't that many, the state with the most is Illinois with only eight, to get sampled, or pay for the samples taken by the co-op employees to be sent to a GIPSA office. As you can imagine, official grading isn't very frequently used to settle individual truckloads of grain. The GIPSA offices do grade with vigorous accuracy, and their testing machines yield final official results, but Elevators already calibrate their own testing equipment to match GIPSA's measurements because it's crucially important that they do so. There are many critical tasks in an elevator's grain handling process, but the first one is arguably the most important, grading the grain correctly. Without doing that, an accurate inventory cannot be maintained. A processor like an ethanol plant or a feed mill that directly takes in truckloads of grain needs to know the measurements of that grain, its moisture, its damage, etc., to know how to calibrate their processing equipment. Similarly, an elevator which is storing the grain before selling it to some other buyer must know the qualities of the grain it has in each bin. Mix and Blend that's where some of the greatest opportunities in cash grain merchandising can occur. The mix-and-blend process is how merchandisers create value in an otherwise low-margin trading environment. Basically, they buy grain at a discount because of various grading factors, like low protein in wheat or high heat damage in corn or a high proportion of shrunk and broken kernels in soybeans. 
Then, by mixing discounted grain with better grain, they can average out the grading factors and sell the whole bin full of mixed grain to the market without discounts. That's the theory, anyway. A merchandiser can hatch the most clever, profitable plan to mix and blend grain, but it may not always be possible or convenient for the facility's operators to physically mix the grain the way the merchandiser has in mind. It may not be possible for the originators, who buy up the grain by communicating with farmer clients to obtain as many bushels as possible, to actually find the grain necessary for the plan. Sometimes merchandisers who identify trading opportunities are also the same employees who originate the grain, but sometimes a grain company will split the two functions, and that can make their sometimes conflicting priorities even more apparent. Sure, the originator can buy fifty thousand bushels of soybeans, but where is the facility staff supposed to put them if the elevator is already full? Perhaps the originator is only able to buy high moisture corn, but the merchandiser has no customer to whom he can sell high moisture corn. Perhaps the merchandiser calculates that wheat with eleven percent protein is only worth a certain price, but the originator can't convince anybody to provide them with wheat at that price. Mix and blend opportunities are frequently more challenging to implement than they are to identify. The math behind mix and blend is simple. It just involves building a matrix of weighted averages. For instance, let's say you mixed three samples of wheat. The first 1,000 bushels of wheat with 11.5% protein and a 58-pound test weight. Then 1,000 bushels with 12% protein and 60-pound test weight. Then 1,000 bushels with 12.5% protein and 62-pound test weight. In the end, you would have 3,000 bushels of 12% protein wheat with 60-pound test weight. However, the practical application of knowing how to segregate an elevator's bins by which categories, knowing which bins to mix with others, and then physically mixing the grain correctly, is a sort of magical alchemy that only a few elevator superintendents can do with true mastery. So, for a merchandiser to work with elevator operations staff who can pull it off well is a competitive advantage in the market. As is a thorough knowledge of where to buy deeply discounted grain and where to sell lower graded grain for the least punitive discounts, because unfortunately every elevator is going to end up with some poor quality grain. Every grain storage system of every design in every country in the world throughout history has, at some point, failed to keep all its grain in perfect condition. To illustrate this. Let's think about some of the worst-case scenarios. A farmer in Africa, as you can imagine, may not have a lot of access to buy shiny new aluminum bins with diesel-powered augers to lift the grain inside, or electric sweeps to gather the grain up off the floor, or gas-powered grain dryers to bring the grain's moisture down to an ideal level for long-term storage. Typically, if you want to store corn for six to twelve months, you want to have it at fourteen percent moisture or less, and to remain at relatively cool temperatures throughout its storage. 
higher moisture levels make it susceptible to heating up, decaying, or attracting pests like insects, rodents, birds, fungi, and microbes. If you've never shoveled wet, moldy, mousy-smelling grain that's hot and crusted over and teeming with bugs in a dark, dusty grain bin somewhere, I don't recommend it. Cows, chickens, and ethanol plants don't really like it either. Back to our African farmer. Let's say she had to harvest her maize, corn, by hand at 20% moisture because there were too many rainstorms at harvest. She doesn't have a shiny aluminum bin to put it in or a modern local elevator to take it to. Instead, she might try drying it in the sunshine on a tarp, and then she'll store it for future use throughout the year in the same way humans have been storing grain for 11,000 years, in bags piled up inside homemade structures. Hand-woven or mud-plastered granary rooms are still used in Africa today, as are hand-built wooden cribs to hold corn cobs. To someone who is accustomed to American grain storage techniques, these methods basically just look like convenient ways to gather grain in one spot for the rats and birds and insects and mold spores to find it. And indeed, the World Bank estimates 10% to 20% of sub-Saharan Africa's grain crop gets lost to spoilage each year, which is roughly equivalent to the amount of grain they import, which could feed 48 million people. I mention that not only because it's a sobering thing to think about, but also because it illustrates the importance of proper grain storage in fundamental human terms. Its importance can also be put in economic terms. If 5% of a bin full of corn is damaged, it still qualifies as number two yellow corn, the industry standard. But for each percentage point above 5% damaged, the contracted price for the corn can decrease by 1% or more. So if the African farmer's grain decays to 30% damaged, for instance, on top of what she's already lost to animals, she may no longer be able to take the grain to town to trade for cash at all. The buyers may not accept grain with that much damage because they don't have the facilities or the inclination to mix and blend the grain. Or even if they did, the discounts may be so steep as to make it not even worth the cost of transporting the grain, which is hugely burdensome on Africa's poorly maintained roads. It's basically impossible to sort individually damaged kernels from healthy kernels by any mechanical means because, being the same size, shape, and weight, they wouldn't fall through different screens. It is possible to do by hand, of course, and hardworking African women are some of the few people who still do this today. And that brings us back to our American grain merchandiser mixing and blending grain. What the African farmer needs is access to a market that can make use of her grain and pay her for it, even if it's not perfect quality. Here in the United States, merchandisers can buy poor quality grain, at a discount of course, and by mixing and blending and knowing their customers' needs, usually make it worth something. There's a limit to these mix and blend opportunities, of course, 
because a merchandiser must have access to enough good quality grain to dilute the damage, and because his customers only have tolerance for so much of it. A cattle feeder, for instance, won't buy corn with any aflatoxin, which is a poisonous fungus that can grow in wet grain. But some processing plants can use that corn if their co-products won't be going back into the animal feed market. On the other hand, some corn that would be graded as heat-damaged, with discoloration, which usually happens when wet corn is stored and the bin heats up, has nearly the same animal feed value as undamaged corn. But ethanol plants steeply discount heat-damaged corn because it won't produce as much ethanol. In any of these examples, I don't want to give the impression that our American grain inventory is stuffed with moldy, damaged grain being pawned off to unsuspecting consumers. For one thing, these damage factors are relatively rare in America, where we have excellent grain drying and storage facilities, and there are only a few atypical years when poor weather at harvest makes these issues pop up. For another thing. Merchandisers definitely do hold a hard line on some non-negotiable quality factors, like the aflatoxin mentioned previously. Grain that has been treated with certain fungicides to be used as seed gets dyed pink, and if that grain ever shows up in a sample, the whole load of grain absolutely cannot be placed into the food chain. For another rare example. A semi truck may haul fertilizer pellets sometimes, then go back to hauling grain. And if it doesn't get perfectly cleaned out, and even one pellet of fertilizer shows up in the sample, that entire load of grain would also be rejected and totally worthless in the market. But these factors illustrate the flexibility of cash grain contracts, and for the little things like a few kernels of corn with cob rot damage. The mix and blend strategy is an excellent trading tool for cash grain merchandisers. It is just one of the ways they have deeper access than either farmers or speculators to make money on the subtleties in the grain markets. Merchandisers could just buy grain with cash grain contracts at one price, and then try slash hope to sell it at a higher price later if the market goes up. But this is generally not what they do. Rather, they make smaller profit margins arbitraging the various factors of the cash grain market, like quality, and they rely on moving a high volume of bushels to make their low margin strategies pay in aggregate. Farmers too can undertake some mix and blend strategies to take advantage of different prices offered for different qualities of grain. But it's impossible to do without a multi-compartment grain storage and blending facility. So a lot of people trading grain may not even care about this facet of the markets. Speculators like hedge funds and retail investors will generally be using financial proxies that represent grain of a standard quality, rather than true cash grain contracts for individualized loads of grain. They have no good way to mix and blend the grain in their portfolio, and therefore can't make money by concerning themselves with the subtle differences between corn from one location and another. There are a few examples of hedge funds who have bought elevators and tried to get into this sector, and there are a few ways a speculator can trade the differences in wheat protein levels, for instance. But more on that later. Merchandisers. 
For now, we'll just stick to all the neat things you can do trading cash grain contracts. I said before that the word merchandiser can apply to a broad population of traders. A merchandiser can be the kid who grew up on a nearby farm and got a job out of college buying truckloads of grain at the local co-op, or a merchandiser can be a high-ranking executive sitting at a desk in the headquarters of a multi-billion-dollar grain company like Archer Daniels Midland (ADM) or Bungie or Cargill or Louis Dreyfus. Grain companies have merchandisers trading grain of all types and in all sizes of contracts. For instance, a merchandiser writes a cash grain contract, very similar to the truckload example earlier in this chapter, for each Neo Panamax vessel being loaded at our ports with two million bushels of grain to be shipped across the ocean to an export customer. The term for merchandisers who aren't trading grain out of a physical storage location. But are rather writing cash grain contracts to move grain through the logistics chain from producer to end user is cross-country traders. They may never physically see or touch any of the grain they trade, and however long or short their total position is—that is, how much net grain they have purchased or committed to sell—the grain never just sits around in an elevator. It's always on the move, being transported by truck or rail or ocean vessel or container. The absolute simplest example of the grain supply chain occurs when a farmer hauls a load of grain directly out of the field where it was harvested, then, without ever storing it in a bin or elevator, takes it directly to a processor like an ethanol plant. Merchandisers can participate in this process by buying the grain directly from the farmer with a cash contract, and selling the grain to the ethanol plant with another cash contract. They do this because they feel there is an arbitrage opportunity, which occurs when you can simultaneously buy and sell an asset at two different prices. Arbitrage. Arbitrage is a beautiful form of low-risk trading. An arbitrage trade is done by simultaneously buying stuff out of one segment of a market and selling stuff into another segment of that same market. For instance, obtaining free rocks from South Dakota and selling them in Nebraska, which is a different geographical segment of the decorative rock market. Another example. Short-selling stock in one pharmaceutical company and simultaneously buying stock in another pharmaceutical company. The overall market for pharmaceutical stocks should generally move in the same direction over time. So, as one trading position loses money, the other position will gain money, hopefully a little more money than is lost. Similarly, you could buy low-protein wheat and simultaneously sell high-protein wheat. The idea isn't to buy and hold one investment in the hope that you will benefit as its price changes. Rather, a successful arbitrage occurs when you identify that one segment of a market is overpriced or underpriced. That is, recognizing that investors have been too exuberant about the overpriced pharmaceutical stock, or that low-protein wheat is currently undervalued. Profit is generated from an arbitrage trade as the price relationship comes back into line with your expectations. Because you have both bought 
and sold in the same general market space at the same time, you have very little risk of losing money outright by guessing wrong about the overall direction of the market. You just want the price of your long position to rise relatively more than the price of your short position, or you want the price of your short position to fall relatively more than the price of your long position. Arbitrage can be the science of identifying and profiting from price differences within a market, and arbitrage can be the art of identifying something that's not worth enough money and turning it into something that's worth lots of money, simply by selling it into a different segment of the market. You can use any number of tools to identify and capitalize on arbitrage opportunities. You can use arithmetic, statistics, your own knowledge and experience, or your superior negotiating skills, just to name a few. The different segments of a market can be separated by distance, time, market access, or sensitivity to quality. The markets themselves can be anything. You can arbitrage rocks, lemonade, used cars, financial instruments, human labor, and, of course, grain. Cross-Country Traders in cross-country trading, the most common form of arbitrage is geographical arbitrage. Corn is worth relatively less out in a farmer's field than it is at the front door of an ethanol plant. If for no other reason, then it takes time, fuel, and equipment to get it there. Understanding freight availability and freight costs and having access to great freight providers like truck drivers and rail lines is therefore key to the success of a cross-country grain trader. Their guideline is to buy FOB, sell delivered. Buying FOB, F-O-B, means buying grain free on board, or writing the cash grain contract so that the buyer takes ownership at the original location of the grain. That is where it gets picked up by the freight provider, and the price of the contract is based on that location. The cross-country trader will therefore own the grain while it is being transported and then sell it delivered, passing ownership on to the next buyer at the destination. Since the cross-country trader has written binding cash grain contracts with two trading partners, whomever is at the origin and whomever is at the destination, he knows the price at both those points and he ought to make a profit. The profit can be calculated as the difference between those two prices, minus the transportation costs. Transportation costs are a cross-country trader's biggest risk. Geographical arbitrage can be a lot more complex and interesting than just moving corn out of a field to an ethanol plant 15 miles away. Sticking with corn as the example, Corn of the same variety and quality can be worth $1 more per bushel in Texas than it is in Minnesota, or more or less, depending on the market at any given point in time. This is strictly to do with supply and demand. There is a band of land called the Corn Belt, stretching across America's Midwestern lap where the vast majority of corn is grown. Think Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana but only a fraction of the nation's corn demand is centered there. There are all the cattle feed yards in the southern plains that need corn, as well as the ports in the Gulf of Mexico, 
and other users like dairies, poultry feeders, and foreign countries, all drawing corn in other locations. Now, it's not always or even frequently possible to drive a truckload of corn from Hutchinson, Minnesota to Galveston, Texas for less than $1 per bushel. But if it was, and if you had the cash and the trading licenses and the trucks to do it, you can see how it would be profitable to buy corn in Minnesota and simultaneously sell it in Texas for $1 more. That's arbitrage. Your profit would be that dollar per bushel, minus your transportation costs per bushel, times as many bushels as you could get on a contract. Also, you might be able to do this by rail, if the freight rates were favorable. Especially now that so many ethanol plants have popped up in the Midwest to use and to pay fair market prices for local corn, it's very rare that such a Minnesota-to-Texas arbitrage opportunity would actually exist. But this is the kind of thinking that cross-country traders go through to identify cash grain trades. They must keep track of local grain market values, fuel prices, the relative economics between truck freight and rail freight and barge freight, and a host of other factors, including the quality factors demanded by their customers. Quality or protein or any other measurement which can vary between one load of grain and another are all also factors that can make up a successful arbitrage trade. For instance, some elevators don't pay protein premiums for wheat, and even among the ones that do, the premiums themselves differ. So if a cash grain trader can identify and buy high-protein wheat out in the countryside, somewhere where there isn't much of a market for protein, then sell that same wheat somewhere else and receive large protein premiums for it, he is conducting an arbitrage trade, buying an underpriced asset for a low price and selling it somewhere else for a higher price. Similarly, a cash grain trader can use what he knows about his customer's tolerance for mold or broken kernels or any other quality factor to buy underpriced grain and sell it where it's worth more. Now you get a sense of how valuable it is to fully understand all those nitpicky details about cash grain contracts. The Grain Supply Chain There is something useful and magical about this whole process. Each cash grain trade, each movement of each kernel of grain, is done with the exact same style of thinking and trading. A cross-country trader buying grain from a farmer's bins could write a contract almost identical to the one from our Joe Smith to the Springfield Co-op example, except that the cross-country contract would say FOB Joe Smith's Farm instead of Delivered to Springfield Co-op. The same cross-country trader could write an almost identical contract if he were buying 100,000 bushels of wheat from Springfield Co-op. He would write a similarly worded contract to then turn around and sell the wheat to yeasty bread mills in Chicago, except it might be a larger number of bushels, and it would probably be delivered by rail. Every cash grain trade is made according to the same style of exacting, carefully negotiated contract, which describes every possible variation of the grain being traded. Basically anybody with a bonded grain dealer's license, can sell grain to anyone else, if it makes economic sense to do so. 
These are all private transactions, generally made by privately owned companies, so it's impossible to know the volume of trades that are made or the volume of grain that moves through each leg of the supply chain. But grain can move through any number of paths. The most common of these paths is probably from grain producer to elevator to processor, or maybe from grain producer to elevator to terminal elevator to exporter. For some agricultural commodities, like vegetables or organic beef, the direct route from producer to consumer may be increasingly common. But for commodity grains, that's unlikely to be a very widely used logistical path. Think of all we have just learned about mixing and blending to achieve standard quality levels throughout the industry. No single producer can guarantee a standard product to a single consumer at all points in time. This is the strength of the commodity grain markets, that through their high volume and efficient logistics, they can essentially commingle all of a region's grain to deliver a standard quality product through a standard distribution channel. Customers can be confident that the market will always be able to provide what they need and those customers always know exactly what they will be getting. Maybe it's not fashionable today. It's not like buying handcrafted cheese from a small-scale artisan. But it's powerful and efficient, and frankly, it's the system that our entire modern economy relies on. No matter its path, each movement of grain is surprisingly similar. There is a cash-grain contract negotiated between a buyer and seller. Then, a freight provider, perhaps a trucker or a rail company or a barge moving down a river or a container shipping line, loads up the grain at its origin. A document called a bill of lading is assigned to each load, specifying who sold the grain, where and when it was loaded, the details of what exactly was loaded, that is, the type of grain, its weights, etc., and to whom the grain is being sold and delivered. The grain gets transported, and at its destination, the bill of lading is consulted to determine what is on board. The destination weighs and samples the grain to confirm what it's receiving. The scale ticket and the original cash grain contract are used to confirm the trade and trigger payment from the buyer to the seller. This process is similar whether the trade is a truckload of wheat from Joe Smith to his local co-op or a trainload of soybeans from a St. Louis terminal elevator to an exporter in Galveston. The stakes are higher with a larger quantity of grain being traded, simply because of the multiplicative function in the math. If an elevator discounts Joe Smith more steeply than he thinks is fair for his particular quality of wheat, then after his first truckload gets graded, he can just send the rest of his trucks somewhere else. But if a train full of corn, and assume there are 385,000 bushels in a shuttle train with 110 cars, is sold to a buyer expecting number two yellow corn, that's with 5% damage or less, and then at the destination it turns out to have 7.1% damage throughout the train, then there will be a major loss of capital when the contracted discounts are taken and the final check is settled and written. Consequently, larger trades or trades going farther distances are often traded according to official GIPSA weights and grades provided by the government.
Resolving conflicts. But what happens if a shipment arrives with a different specification than the buyer was expecting? If the buyer isn't an elevator who can just accept the shipment and discount it accordingly, or if the buyer just doesn't have the space and ability to blend the grain into the rest of its inventory, then there is a real problem. The buyer may have to reject the shipment, and now there's the question of what to do with the original contract. Can the seller provide a different shipment of grain to fulfill its contract, or must it buy back out of the contract financially? How are contract disagreements resolved? Most merchandising work is done over the telephone, but instant messaging and email trades are becoming increasingly frequent. No matter what communication method was used, once that contract is agreed upon, it's final. The seller is legally obligated to provide what he sold in the time frame for which he sold it, and the buyer must accept and pay for what he bought. But as you can imagine, stuff happens. Crops fail, elevator equipment breaks, transportation plans fall apart. In 999 of a thousand cases in the grain industry, the buyer and seller will work together to come up with a fair plan to keep everyone relatively content. If there is a dispute, however, the two parties can fall back to the trade rules governing the contract in question. Typically, cash grain contracts are written to be bound by the National Grain and Feed Association's trade rules and arbitration procedures. In fact, any contract between two members of the NGFA, which includes pretty much every grain company, elevator, and grain processor in the United States, is automatically governed by these rules, unless the contract expressly claims otherwise. There are sections in the rulebook for grain trades, feed trades, barge trades, barge freight trades, and rail freight trades. The long list of rules itself might seem absurdly pedantic to any farmer or futures trader who's otherwise unconcerned with the minutiae of cash grain trading, but each section of the NGFA rules booklet is carefully written to provide some reassurance, some authority for every piece of a cash grain trade written between merchandisers. If the company on the other side of a cash grain contract doesn't price their grain in a timely manner or reneges on some agreed upon fee, there is a generally accepted method to resolve the issue. The method usually starts with confidential informal mediation by an NGFA committee, and if that doesn't clear everything up, it can progress through a channel of arbitration hearings, announcement of awards, and appeals. Accounting, the long and the short of it. It's a very rare grain trade that ends up with a formal dispute. Cash grain traders, merchandisers, can typically rely on the contracts they've written with other parties to be as valuable as cash in hand. Cash grain accounting, therefore, involves accounting for each cash grain contract as if the bushels of grain were like boxes of dry goods on a store shelf. The accounting practices will be different for each grain company. Nevertheless, all use the same useful concepts. Merchandisers trade a position rather than calling it a portfolio to get the lingo correct. 
Because an elevator, for instance, both buys grain from farmers and also sells grain to processors, exporters, terminal elevators, and other traders, the sum of all their contracts can be either long, that is, they have bought more grain than they have sold, or it can be short, that is, they have sold more grain than they have bought. This should be familiar terminology to anyone who's ever been involved in any kind of trading. If you buy Microsoft stock, for instance, you are long Microsoft stock. If you sell something, you are short in the market for that thing. And yes, you can be short in grains, or any market for that matter. This is one of the hardest things for new grain traders to understand. They ask, how can I sell something I don't have? Think about it this way. You're at your family reunion and your somewhat crazy rich cousin starts talking about how badly he wants a 1970 Chevy Chevelle, preferably a red one, one that's been really well restored into show condition. Now, at this point, you don't currently own a 1970 Chevelle, but you have a pretty good idea where you can get one. So you write a contract with your cousin to sell him one show-quality red 1970 Chevelle for $50,000. You are now short the Chevelle market. Then, after you've already sold it, you proceed to go buy a beat-up old chassis and an engine block and whatever else you need, and you pay your mechanic friend to get it into the proper condition. The whole process costs you maybe $30,000. You deliver it to your cousin, et voila, you close out your short trade with a $20,000 profit margin. Those are exactly the steps taken by a merchandiser who doesn't currently own any corn, but who shorts corn, for instance, to an ethanol plant. He can later proceed to buy the necessary amounts from farmers or from other traders to fulfill his contracted obligations. He may do some mixing and blending to the corn, like the mechanic friend fixing up the Chevelle, and he has to transport it to the plant, the delivery. As far as accounting for the trade goes, when he sells 50,000 bushels, his position is short 50,000 bushels, and each subsequent purchase contract he writes is an offset to his initial short position. If he buys 10,000 bushels from a farmer, his total position would then be short only 40,000 bushels. Ultimately, he will have to buy in or offset the entire position, but the intention behind his original short position in the market was that he felt he could sell the asset at a higher price at one particular time or to one particular customer and then offset his position by buying the same asset for a cheaper price from someone else or at some other time. The math behind a trading position is just simple addition and subtraction, with long positions that is purchases, represented as positive values, and short positions, that is sales, represented in the same units but as negative values. A grain company with several elevators, for instance, can figure out their total market position by summing up each elevator's long or short positions. Likewise, a cross-country trader may have 100 trucks worth of soybeans sold in one location, but 40 trucks worth purchased somewhere else. His net position would be short 60 trucks worth of soybeans. 
Because merchandisers can trade a number of different categories of grain, they can even regard their grain market positions as a net sum across many categories, rather than just being long or short in corn and long or short in soybeans. They can determine how long or short they are in all types of grain, which is important for elevators that are constrained to a certain volume of gross bushels they can store. Are being a position. So, in some senses, a merchandiser can offset long corn positions with short soybeans positions, or be long Nebraska soybeans but simultaneously short Missouri soybeans, or be short 14% protein spring wheat but simultaneously long 10% protein winter wheat, just to name a few examples. Being simultaneously long and short in two categories within a market is another form of arbitrage. The accounting will ultimately work out like an arbitrage, with one underpriced asset being bought and one overpriced asset being sold. What makes an arbitrage work is that the whole market, within which the two parts of the arbitrage are being traded, should move in the same direction. If the two markets are totally unrelated, like milk prices and Ford stock, for instance, you could buy one and sell the other, and they could both move in diverging directions. You could lose money both ways. That's not an arbitrage because there is no expectation that the two are related or that the prices of one can offset the other. A good example of an arbitrage would be a pair of trades that take place within the wheat market. All wheat prices should theoretically move roughly up or down at the same rate. A merchandiser could simultaneously sell 14% protein wheat and buy 10% protein wheat, and believe some profit will come from the difference in value changing between those two categories, no matter if the whole wheat market suddenly shoots higher. Or lower in price, the math would look something like this: In April, you sell 1,000 bushels of 14% protein wheat at seven dollars per bushel. You receive seven thousand dollars. Also, you buy 1,000 bushels of 10% protein wheat at four dollars and fifty cents per bushel. You pay forty-five hundred dollars. Then in May. You buy back the 1,000 bushels of 14% protein wheat at $11. You pay $11,000, and you sell the 1,000 bushels of 10% protein wheat at $9 per bushel and receive $9,000. The result is you lost $4,000 from the 14% wheat trade. You received $7,000 but paid out $11,000. But you profited forty-five hundred dollars from the ten percent wheat trade. You paid out forty-five hundred dollars and received nine thousand dollars. So the total profit from the two trades together was five hundred dollars. Two things should stick out at you about that particular example of an arbitrage trade. One, for the amount of capital the merchandiser, or more realistically, the merchandiser's employer. Is sinking into the initial trade, there isn't a really wild amount of profit involved, and even this example is quite exaggerated. 
I've mentioned before that traditional grain companies tend to operate with relatively low expected margins on each trade. They make their profits by trading large volumes. So even if the total profit of this trade was five cents per bushel instead of fifty cents per bushel, you'd do okay if you were trading to the tune of one million bushels on each side. The second thing, this arbitrage worked. Regardless of the fact that the whole wheat market shot up wildly by more than four dollars per bushel, and it would have worked even if the whole market had calamitously dropped four dollars per bushel, because the merchandiser was simultaneously both long and short in the market. If he had just sold one thousand bushels of wheat in April and closed out the trade in May. That's just the fourteen percent protein part of the arbitrage. He could have lost four thousand dollars. That's four dollars per bushel. Alternatively, if he had just bought one thousand bushels of wheat, and the whole market dropped four dollars per bushel, he would have lost that much. Imagine if that was done one million bushels at a time. That's why grain companies basically never take the risk of being straight long or straight short in the grain markets. It's very risky indeed, and with their ability to handle large numbers of bushels and keep track of all these detailed factors of the cash grain market, they can make safer returns on their capital with these low-risk arbitrage trades. How arbitrage makes markets work. The very act of the merchandiser selling the overpriced asset and buying the underpriced asset helped bring those two markets closer together. When there is a large volume of buying interest in a given market, prices move higher due to supply and demand. Correspondingly, a large number of sellers can motivate an entire market's prices to move lower. So, if enough arbitrageurs identify an overpriced/slash/underpriced situation, and do a lot of selling/slash/buying on each side of the trade, the situation will automatically correct itself. That, in fact, is the economic function of an arbitrageur. When the investment bank Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein unironically claimed his company was doing quote. God's work, in late 2009, he may have been referring to the fact that traders who sell overpriced assets and buy underpriced assets are helping to bring market prices closer to fair, whatever fair is. Anyway, how did the fictional merchandiser in our example know to sell the 14% protein wheat and buy the 10% protein wheat, and not the other way around? In a nutshell. Because he knew the spread at two dollars and fifty cents—that's the difference between the two prices, the seven dollars and the four dollars and fifty cent prices—was too large. Perhaps if the two markets had only been one dollar apart instead of two dollars and fifty cents apart, he would have thought the spread was too narrow and made the opposite arbitrage, based on his knowledge of historical norms or anticipated wheat millers' needs. From whatever instinct. In this instance, he was able to identify that fourteen percent protein wheat was overpriced compared with ten percent protein wheat, and he made his arbitrage trade to take advantage of that fact.
There is no way I can write a definitive guideline for what that wheat spread should be at any given point in time, because it is all dependent on the supply and demand at that point in time. As such, it requires the expertise and constant attention that only specialized merchandisers have. There are merchandisers whose business it is to always know what that wheat protein spread should be, or what the corn grade spreads should be. That would be quality arbitrage, or what the corn to soybean meal spread should be. That's intermarket feed arbitrage, or what the Nebraska to Missouri corn spread should be. That's geographical arbitrage. That's how they make their money, and that's how the markets stay efficiently and fairly priced. Traders' judgment, but expertise is one thing, and being able to make a decision is another, and being able to expertly negotiate favorable prices for the trade you have in mind is a whole different thing altogether. In a cross sample of all the grain industry's merchandisers, you would encounter a wide variety of abilities in all these matters. Ultimately, profit isn't made by just sitting at a desk and making obvious purchases and sales. It's made from taking a risk and being either long or short in a given sector of the market. The merchandiser in our example was short protein. He sold fourteen percent against ten percent. He chose to be short in protein because he was bearish on protein. Bearish is the market term used to describe your viewpoint when you think the prices of a certain asset are going to move lower. Bullish means you expect the prices of a certain asset to move higher. Because you've already learned that you can sell something at a relatively high price before you buy it back, you can see that just because someone is bearish on a market, he doesn't necessarily expect to lose money. Most market news and financial education regards the stock market, which has fundamental reasons for continually gaining value over time, and effectively all its participants benefit when it does gain value. Because of that, I think people have come to develop a positive mental association with bullish things, and an unhappy mental association with bearish things. In commodities, however, prices move up or down with good fundamental supply and demand reasons all the time, and a trader can make just as much money being bearish and going short in a market as he can by being bullish and going long. The benefits flow in both directions. Think of being bearish about avocado prices. Isn't it a positive mental thing when those prices go down and you don't have to pay so much to get a lovely bowl of guacamole? Eternal bulls and bears. Grain merchandisers, for the most part, get the luxury of choosing whether they are bullish or bearish on a particular market. And going on to establish either long or short positions to reflect their viewpoint, there are some exceptions. A local cooperative elevator, a co-op, is owned by the local farmers and is therefore basically obligated to buy their grain whenever they want to sell it. So co-ops and any other elevators with an eye toward customer service can find themselves more long in grain than the economics would necessarily motivate them to be. 
In this, they join most of the other members of the grain markets in sometimes having a position that is more long or short than their bullish or bearish viewpoint recommends. Think about a farmer, for example, with several fields of grain growing in the sunshine. Whether or not he objectively thinks the price of grain is going to rise, he's long grain, and he probably feels bullish about grain prices, if for no other reason than he always hopes grain prices rise and hopes his income from those growing fields will rise. Actually, given that farming isn't exactly the kind of undertaking one does once and then moves on, a farmer is not only long grain for the current growing season, but also effectively long grain and bullish for every year for the rest of his life or as long as he intends to continue farming. Similarly, think of a flour mill. Their business is to buy wheat, grind it into flour, and sell that flour. For all the days that flour mill will be in existence, it will benefit if grain prices grow cheaper and or if flour prices grow stronger. Of course, grain prices and flour prices probably won't grow cheaper and stronger at the same time, but nevertheless, a flour mill is going to always want the grain markets to be bearish and always want the flour market to be bullish. Farmers' livelihoods and profits depend on the quantity and quality of each harvest and on grain prices moving higher or at least not dropping too low. Efficiently bringing in a harvest and receiving a fair price for it are as dead serious to each farmer as the movement of stock prices is to the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. The elevator's merchandisers are also dependent on a large harvest to bring in the maximum number of bushels they can accumulate and trade. In fact, anyone who hopes to make money in the grain markets, even by simply speculating on the prices, will benefit from knowing how each harvest progresses and how the grain moves through the market.